You're listening to Payday, the global payroll podcast from CloudPay, and I'm your host, David Barocco. This is part two of our conversation with Brian Summer on lessons in digital transformation. Companies need to think about this sobering thought. The implementer and the software vendors that you're used to have dealt with in the last 20 or 30 years may not be the same ones you use that take you into the digital age. And what you have to do as a buyer is you have to craft very tight, scripted scenarios that you're going to give to the vendor, not just demonstrate a process, very specific business problems you want to see them solve. And if they can't show it to you during the demo, they certainly won't be able to deliver it in real in real life. Brian, this has been a longer than planned episode, so we'll likely have to divide it into two parts. But uh, thanks for sticking around. It's been a fascinating conversation. And before we move our conversation to talk about the role that vendors have to play in business cases and just general transformation projects, let's address the HR and payroll listeners specifically by sharing some lessons you want them to take away as it relates to their departments and initiatives for change and transformation. I want to make sure that uh, HR folks, when they define transformation, that they don't bound it so narrowly that it only applies to a small piece of the company. I saw a uh, chief HR officer at one firm who was going to lead a rebranding of the company and a new corporate culture. Unfortunately, it only really applied to the people who worked out of the headquarters building. And that's sad because... Uh, you know, they have a very large distributed workforce all around the globe, and none of those folks were actually going to be able to take advantage of that. Moreover, to you know, she also wanted to put in a bunch of people-friendly kind of initiatives, like some, uh, you know, um, at headquarters, like a child care deal and uh, upgraded food options for employees. Again, because it didn't go across the entire organization, comes off has a real uh, divisive point with a lot of the workforce. Transformation has to be really well thought out. And um, I think, you know, uh, I would tell folks to take a page out of what happens in the agribusiness world where they know that any given kind of seed or hybrid crop kind of thing that they're producing, uh, nature will end up creating counter defenses to it and attack that after a few years. So what they have over decades is they've developed a methodology that for every new crop they introduce um, or seed variety they introduce, they know it has a useful life of a few years and then they're going to wind it down and they're going to wind something up. And they've taken that even in their HR area that they know that there are people they're going to need who must shepherd the old solutions, the old products, and the old organization, if you will, of the company for a time while they ramp up and transition a new piece of the business. What's important for HR to realize is you're going to have to probably reskill a huge amount of the workforce. You may have to replace a bunch of it, and you may have to find a lot of workers in other countries or locations you were never at before. And while all that's going on, you also need some HR people who are going to keep 
everything running and moving very smoothly with the older parts of the business that might be winding down. Now let's talk about specifically the payroll. There are many new kinds of like pay opportunities that are going to keep coming up and the amount of global payroll is probably only going to continue to grow. I know we've got some trade wars going on right now uh, coming out of the White House, but globalization is not going to stop, you know, necessarily because of that. And we're going to continue to see more of this push out and that's going to keep that front and center. What HR has to be good at is two things. One is managing the more uh, tactical and transactional aspects of HR and payroll at ever lower cost points and improve service levels over time. That's one mandate that can't move because tied with that will be all the regulatory and compliance stuff. But the other aspect is HR has to be able to create the change capabilities that find, reward, pay, and scale large number of employees in the new emerging business lines of the company once the company starts to transform. So HR is going to be a bit schizophrenic and that's okay. Uh, if it stays stuck in one mode, that will be the end of HR in a lot of companies. You need to be able to move in both directions. And you can't really talk about any of these transformation projects without touching on vendors, right? You're going to be talking to somebody trying to sell you a new product, a new service. And I don't know a lot of companies that don't oversell on the vision and the promise of their technology or their service, right? And some of them are would say they're not overselling, they're selling you on the roadmap, right? But a lot of times organizations fall for um, a lot of that overselling. Any recommendation for validating the kind of information you're getting? Because a lot of that business case you're talking about building is driven by what vendors are promising you around their technology. Yes, um, I'm actually glad you asked that question. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of hype, particularly from older technology vendors. And uh, what they're trying to do is they're just trying to keep you in the fold as an existing customer so that someday, somehow, and some future point in time, they're going to be able to deliver something for you. The problem is, uh, you know, I'll give you a real life example. I had a client who had a $150 million proposal from a technology vendor. And uh, it was all full of pie in the sky dreams and so forth. But the client wasn't sure. There was just something that made him feel a little uneasy about it all. And this was to build, uh, this sounds dull to you guys, but it was to help them outfit a factory of the future and upgrade all their underlying um, software infrastructure. I knew none of the vendors that they were thinking about could actually deliver this. I mean, flat out could not deliver. And so I suggest to the client, why don't we just create a RFI that outlines what you want and we'll set up some very specific demonstration scenarios where there were very specific things we needed the vendor to show us, not the usual stuff. And to use like a payroll term, we don't need to know how you're calculating FUDA, SUDA, FICA and everything else. We'll assume you can do that for the U.S. payroll. Where we have problems are things like payroll in Tanzania, 
or we've got uh, regulatory and compliance filings in some other country, or maybe your firm has five different payroll service providers just in Ireland alone. Mm -hmm. So we document those and we document the daylights out of them. And then we give those to the vendors to make them show us what they actually can do against those problems. Vendors know when they come in the door, they can't solve a bunch of that. So then they try to deflect. They try and um, show you other things. And, you know, it's like watching uh, somebody pull off a shell game, they're trying to distract you in one hand while they're trying to hide the fact that they can't deliver it on the other. I did this for this one giant client and um, with a colleague of mine. And at the end of the day, I kind of felt bad that we had charged them money to help them with this selection that didn't end up going anywhere. My client was furious with these software vendors and they were happy with us. But I always thought like, you know, I wish this had ended in on a more positive note. And then one day this January, I got a Christmas card or a holiday card from the CIO of this huge company. And I wasn't expecting one. And he, I opened it up and the note inside said, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving us from a $150 million mistake. And then I knew, oh, okay, and then my fee was okay then. Um, I tell you that because, yes, there's a huge amount of this. And what you have to do as a buyer is you have to craft very tight scripted scenarios that you're going to give to the vendor, not just demonstrate a process, very specific business problems you want to see them solve. And if they can't show it to you during the demo, they certainly won't be able to deliver it in real in real life. And some of these projects are large enough to warrant an RFP. Some of them do not. But I suspect that's a very common scenario, not, if not for you, but for many consultants, that you're involved in projects that ultimately decide to do nothing. Is that is that fair? Is that do you, do you think that's even a good outcome that so many organizations who take on transformation projects end up doing nothing and walking away from it? Now, in our own experience, we find that about 50% of organizations that decide to do global HR, global payroll transformations, once they get a full view of what the process will be like, and once they've really looked into the market and what the possibilities are, 50% of them walk away completely. And maybe that ends up saving them a lot of money, or maybe they didn't have that internal uh, leader or the drive or urgency to make the change. But do you think that the fact that 50% of organizations that take on the projects walk away from them, do you see that as a problem? I think what happens is it's a sign that the vendors they asked to come in and present to them were the wrong vendors in some cases, in some cases. In some cases, clearly the customer or the prospect had no idea what this thing's gonna cost. And when they finally saw the numbers, whatever they had sticker shock or what have you. There are many different reasons why somebody might do this. On a transformative project though, you gotta remember how I was telling you that there are four phases companies have to go through. Somebody might do a scan. Someone might think they have ideated a great concept and the like. And then when they ask vendors to come in and showcase their technology, that's when they realize like, uh-oh, the technology is not as mature as we thought it's going to be. They'll probably cycle back and look at that technology in another year to see if it's matured enough that they can now use it. Doesn't mean that it was a bad idea. It just meant that 
they had a great idea that was maybe ahead of its time. And this is what I do run into quite a bit. Is that someone has a grand idea and then they can't find the technology or the implementers or whatever. There's something critical that's not available yet and they're going to have to wait. The other thing I would tell you is they went looking in the wrong direction. They didn't do a good scan yet. They didn't see who really are the right leaders for this. And today, a lot of times companies need to think about this sobering thought. The implementer and the software vendors that you're used to have dealt with in the last 20 or 30 years may not be the same ones you use that take you into the digital age. And that's, and that's a very sobering thought because a lot of times those existing vendors are the ones that are trying to build a case for how they'll improve and transform. Um, they're releasing a new version. They're talking about, you know, they're using the same buzzwords that some of the new entrants are using. So I appreciate that it's difficult for you to separate yourself from some of those vendors, right? And, and go into the market looking anew. In one case uh, last year, I remember going up to Canada to meet with the executive committee of a company and they their board wanted them to do a digital transformation deal and somebody on the executive committee thought that meant replatform the ERP product. I don't know how you make that mental jump. And a couple of my competitors have been in there pitching them a software project to basically pick new ERP. And I walked in the door and I go, you know what? My guess is you don't need new ERP. In fact, you could ring fence that. What you really need is this. And I pulled up online a completely new company they'd never heard of, a new technology firm that works in big data analytics and algorithmic knowledge and everything else. And as soon as I brought that up, the head of their, of all people, their supply chain executive VP, he jumps up, starts pointing at the screen and yelling at all of his peers in the room. This, this is what the board wants us to be working on, not replatforming ERP. So sometimes, you know, that project died right there because I showed him a better alternative. And maybe I'll get to do some work with them later on, but it was the right thing to do to point out that there are other options out there. These folks hadn't done a very good job of scanning or anything else. They jumped right to trying to do a transformation before they really understood the problem. Uh, no, like, I, I was just going to say, I really like the four-stage model that you have there around exploring and, and moving into a transformation project. As a transformation-oriented leader, you want to bring in new ideas, but there are a lot of people in your company, outside your company, like the vendors and contractors we talked about, that are interested in protecting the old ideas, the existing ideas. See this particularly pronounced in global companies that have regional managers, in-country managers that see any kind of centralization project, for example, as a threat to them. So how have you seen leaders successfully navigate that treacherous environment when you're trying to impact change from a central location and have to get a lot of buy-in from local managers that may not necessarily see the upstream benefits of that transformation and may in fact perceive this as a threat to them. Well, you're correct in that that's a very real problem for companies that are, um, I'm going to call them a confederation style business, uh, where there's a lot of autonomy at a lot of different local levels. 
a big centrally driven kind of change is going to be tough. And uh, I'm not going to tell you that it's just, it's a slam dunk. I think for that kind of a change, though, you need to start at the very tip top of the organization and you have to have a meeting of the minds. And the first thing we you got to talk about is uh, someone's going to have to ask the tough questions. Will tactical functions like, and I'll pick on payroll processing here, is that going to really move the needle much in our firm's ability to offer new products and services and solutions to the market? And the answer is probably going to be no. So then the question comes, then why are we supporting, you know, 50, 60 different HR products around the world to do this when we could probably do it with one and achieve some one-time solid productivity and efficiency savings there so that we can free up IT and R&D and innovation funds and money to work on things that will move the needle on competitive advantage. This is really a question of getting people to understand at the top, starting at the top, where the focus needs to be on spending scarce shareholder capital. And my, many companies have this highly distributed, divisionalized, autonomous kind of world out there because years ago, technology costs were high, telecommunications costs were prohibitively high, the internet was not ubiquitous and on and on and on. So you almost had to recreate, if you will, a little headquarters in every country that you operated in. You don't need to do that anymore. And in fact, it's not an efficient way to run a company. And then you ask yourself, well, what, always ask this question, what would Amazon do or what would Google do or whatever? And you'll find out they sure wouldn't replicate everything in every country either. They're all about ruthless efficiency and productivity gains while simultaneously putting as much money as they can into hardcore innovation that's going to really drive outsized returns for the company. Start at the top. If you can get people to salute that argument at the top, then you can push it through and work it your way down. And all this goes right back to the point you and I were talking about earlier around political capital. This is where you show your political savvy in figuring this aspect out and getting that consensus at the top so that you can move it downstream. Brian, I think you've, you've obviously had a number of experiences where you've seen successful transformation and a number where there were some very unsuccessful outcomes. Can you, and you don't have to name any names, right? In fact, I prefer you didn't. Um, can you give an example of a successful transformation you worked on and some of the things that, you know, of the items we've mentioned, some of the things that they, really incorporated into that transformation that ensured its success? And then maybe an example or two of some that have not worked and some of the lessons that those organizations must have learned from that experience. On the success side, uh, for if you're a manufacturer, you need to go look at a, look at some of the, the Midwest manufacturers in the U.S. that are using some of the like Plex manufacturing software today. Uh, these plants are going, they're like paperless plants. You know, there's uh, heads-up displays on uh, with uh, smart glasses, uh, digital micrometers. I, I go on and on and on. It's pretty amazing how automated they, these companies have been able to do it. But related to that, if you want to see someone who did it over time, take a plant tour of a Toyota facility where they have the Toyota production management system. It is one incredibly impressive, highly integrated 
uh, system that drives you know, you know them to the kind of high quality culture that their cars are famous for. You got to see those. And another one, if you're in the LA near LAX, you got to get a tour if you can of the SpaceX headquarters. Um, Elon Musk new company. And what's amazing to see when you go there is this company didn't even exist 10, 11 years ago. And yet, in a short amount of time, they've been able to build multiple different kinds of rockets, been able to ship stuff to the International Space Station. They've created all kinds of new technologies and new rocket designs. And they've done all this in almost nothing, you know, from a time lapse time perspective. You got to look at those because those are really transformative. But more importantly, you got to listen to the employees and you just realize this is one amazing place. And as someone who worked at SpaceX was uh, telling me, he wished every company was run like SpaceX. So there are some successful ones out there. Yeah. And, um, and certainly really big brands, really good public examples of organizations that almost have transformation built into their and, you know, the way they're structured. Mm -hmm. um, now, what's interesting about those is you gave a company that has a really, really kind of prominent leader uh, in SpaceX. Um, and then, uh, you know, you've given some where, you know, it's more distributed in its leadership style. So Toyota, for example, right? Um, so, and I think that one's a little less commonly known, what do you think's been responsible for successful transformation or change in companies like Toyota, where maybe it's not a single visionary that's driving it? I think it's because everybody in the company is relentlessly and singularly focused on improving uh, the operating results of the company. Uh, you know, they're all about improving the quality, the finish. Um, and, and it's amazing the incremental little changes that pop up. I I was astonished to find out that uh, the people that work in the paint parts of the um, uh, assembly operations, they're not allowed to use any kind of uh, perfume, antiperspirant, uh, deodorants, nothing like that. And so much so that no one else in the plant can go into like paint rooms and that's because it took them a long time, but they kept finding uh, through relentless detective work, they finally found what would cause maybe some small imperfections in paint. And that was, um, you know, that, that's really amazing that they have that kind of a, uh, attention to detail. Um, I also was on the line one time when a, um, when all of a sudden the entire production line in this 100 and plus acre facility just shut down in a second. And all of a sudden I hear this music from, I think it was Fleur de Lis, uh, started playing this classical music piece. And everyone's, every worker, their head popped up and they're looking and listening for where's that sound coming from. And that's what happens when any employee pulls the cord to stop the line because they detected a defect in the middle of the production. And then next thing you know, here comes all here come all these people running over, some with clipboards and manuals, but others are coming over with grinders and other stuff. And it turned out that someone had forgot to deburr a weld at a previous workstation, and they came over and took care of it real quick, and then the car went on it, you know, they restarted the line, the car went on its way. 
what was interesting was this Toyota employee standing next to me said, yeah, Toyota, we don't believe in pushing our defects down to the dealers to take care of for customers. We fix it right here and now. And, and they're documenting this to figure out how did that happen so it never happens again. I know you could say, well, that's a total quality management initiative, and it is, but you think about these systems in that plant that allow somebody to like shut it down. The music kicks in so you can identify where the problem is. They built entire systems and infrastructure to create that kind of world and make it a reality and make it a competitive difference for them. It's a pretty cool place, it really is. Really cool story there, yeah. And uh, what about, uh, do you have any to share that are, you know, lessons about some less successful transformations that you were involved in? Yeah, I'll tell you one. Um, there's a high-tech manufacturer, and they had a genius that worked for him. This cat had invented all kinds of, you know, innovations for them, had uh, dozens of patents to his name. And one day he decides he wants to go fishing in Canada and take some time off. The company just got a new CEO who's what I would call a professional manager. He's someone who's worked with uh, hedge funds and private equity firms, stuff like that. This cat only speaks in debits and credits and debentures, that kind of stuff. And when the CEO finds out this guy's going to take an undeterminate or indeterminate vacation, he comes down to meet with this guy and he says, you can't be just take off like this and we need you here. And he goes, no, I need to go take a vacation. I'm going fishing up in Canada. He goes, when you come back? He goes, I don't know. And they get into a big argument, and the CEO fires the guy, probably one of the most brilliant people in that company. So the guy goes off fishing, and after two or three weeks in Canada, the fish finally petered out, or he ran out of interest, but he filled an entire notebook full of brilliant ideas for new products. Came back, uh, back home, talked to some venture capitalists, got some money, launched a company, and within a year, he was just killing his old employer selling new hardware and finally it took about two years of punishing losses at his old employer that one of the board members you know met with the guy and said we'd like to buy you what's it going to take he threw out an outrageous number and he said and you've got to get a new ceo and um, that was not negotiable so the guy ended up coming back to work for his old employer filthy rich and with a new boss I tell you that story because transformation initiatives require a special kind of person who has that kind of vision. And the people that work on these projects, they're risk takers and they're ideators. They're not your drone workers. They need You need a different kind of manager that knows how to deal with these kind of folks because they, I'm not saying they are special people, whatever, but they are different. And you can't just use the same carrot and stick approach used with the, the general masses of people in your company. You may have to do something very different there and realize that your future may rest with cultivating a lot of folks like that. If you think about anything about transformation, think about where you have a home for those kind of people in your firm. That's a really interesting thought to leave this discussion on, Brian. So thank you for reminding us the value that individuals have to play in successful digital transformation and what value organizations play in encouraging that kind of talent and developing that kind of talent in their uh, workforce. 
Thank you so much for joining us for a great episode of the Payday Podcast, Brian. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about Brian's work and more about digital transformation, check out Brian's book, Digital with Impact, available on Amazon. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Payday, the global payroll podcast from CloudPay. Make sure not to miss our next episode by subscribing at paydaypodcast.net. Until next time, I'm your host, David Brock.